There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday the 24th of August with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Pope Francis arrives in Ireland tomorrow and uh, despite uh, this week's apology from uh, the Vatican, the Pope's video message to the Irish people and uh, the Pontiff's agreement to meet with uh, survivors of uh, clerical child sexual abuse, Colm O'Gorman has been telling me that people are to meet elsewhere this Sunday at 3 o'clock in the Stand for Truth rally which will be at the Garden of Remembrance in in solidarity with everyone harmed or abused by the institutional Roman Catholic Church. I mean, I don't want to be dismissive because um, I'm not sure that's particularly helpful, but I think what's frustrating, Michael, is that 20 years on from first asking the Vatican to tell the simple truth, um, they still continue to do so. You know, I would defy anybody to read either the Vatican's statement in response to the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report or uh, Francis's 2010 word letter from earlier this week and find within it an honest acknowledgement uh, and uh, a taking of responsibility for the Vatican's direct responsibility for designing, implementing and directing the cover-up of the crimes of clergy, the rape and abuse of children, of women, of vulnerable adults, on an industrial scale um, across this country and across much of the Catholic world. And until that happens, uh, the reality is the Pope, this one, the last one, the next one, will continue to avoid telling the truth. And I'm sorry to say this, but they'll continue to lie, either directly or by omission. And I just don't think that's good enough anymore. And do you believe uh, that uh, the Pope is or has been lying or directly uh, choosing not to address the issues? Well, we know that Benedict and John Paul II lied. So if we go back as far as, I don't know, the mid-1990s and then up until about 2005 and 2006, both of them told us that... uh, All of the allegations that were emerging, all of the stories that were emerging were um, part of a grand conspiracy to do down the Catholic Church. That this was a a media conspiracy or an anti-Catholic conspiracy. 
They told us that abuse is not widespread within the church. They told us that it had not been covered up. They told us that this was a case of a few bad apples. And, you know, many of their bishops, including bishops here in Ireland, said the same thing. And they were lies. You know, at the same time as they were telling us that they didn't understand the impact of abuse or that this was even really happening, um, a decade earlier, they had taken out insurance policies. Every diocese on this island had taken out specific insurance policies to protect themselves and their money uh, against cases that might be taken by people who have been raped and abused by their priests. So, yes, I'm, I'm sorry to say they lied, bishops, cardinals and popes. And right now, Francis is lying by omission. He acknowledges a cover-up, but he, he refuses to say who was responsible for that cover-up. He talks about the idea of accountability, but he doesn't say who must be accountable and who will hold them accountable. And one of the reasons for that, Michael, is that if bishops uh, were uh, the, at the front of the cover-up at the diocesan level, it was the Vatican who directed it. And how can the Vatican hold bishops accountable for, for doing what it told them to do? And we've seen that reveal this week. You know, we saw last week uh, Mary McAleese talk of how Cardinal Zidano, the foreign minister for the Vatican, in 2003, wanted Ireland as a republic to enter into a legal agreement with the Vatican that would allow it to bury evidence of these crimes, whether they were held in the files of diocese here in Ireland or at the Vatican. There is no question of the Vatican's role in directing this cover-up. They did it and codified it in their laws, and they continue to refuse it. So I'm sorry to say that, yes, Pope Francis, it will arrive here tomorrow continues with the deceit and continues to lie by omission at this stage. I've been talking to you on and off over the course of uh, the last two decades, uh, Colm O'Gorman, and uh, throughout all of that, uh, your conversations have been very difficult uh, for some people. Your battle to get acknowledgement and indeed justice for what was done to you and to the impact that the abuse you suffered at the hands of Father Sean Forgeon uh, that that changed your life, left you without any confidence. You ended up despising yourself and then went on uh, in this quest for justice to sue the Pope and become one of the most public figures in the world, I think, uh, to take on the church. Uh, But what do you say to people who say today, look, uh, when you make these accusations, you make them against my church, therefore you make them against me. I didn't do anything. The Pope didn't do anything. My local priest didn't do anything. And this is far too hurtful on an occasion that should be joyful for us as Catholics. Well, I suppose, first of all, I'd say that this isn't about me. And I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm blessed. I'm resilient. I've survived. Uh, others haven't. Um, I think about, about people I know who died young man who shot himself in the chest with a shotgun at the age of 23, uh, well over two decades ago now, because um, he just couldn't live with what had happened to him. He was raped and abused by Sean Fortune as well. And I remember sitting with his parents as they wept and acknowledged what had happened to their son for the first time back in 2001. So I think about them today. I'm lucky I've achieved justice. I won my case against the diocese. I was able to get them to admit negligence in my case in open court which was incredibly important back in 2003, because until then, 
dioceses in this country and across the world always settled cases with confidentiality agreements and refusals to admit liability. Um, the Pope claimed diplomatic immunity back in 2003 to avoid telling the truth about what they knew in, in my case and in the case of others abused by the same priest. But this isn't about me. Um, nor is it about people of faith. And what I would say to any person of deep faith who's listening to this, I stand for truth, for justice and for love. Those are values that I learned from my parents. Um, those are values that I learned from the generations that came before me. Those are values that I try to live today and that I've tried to teach to our own children. Those are also values that underpin the faith that those very people profess. So stand for those values. And above all, please stop conflating the crimes of the institution of the church with your faith. Because when you do so, you do a grave disservice and you cause, I think, a grave uh, insult to your own faith. Are you the faith that people hold is not responsible for the crimes of the institution. The institution is. Are you meeting Pope Francis? No, I, I haven't been asked to meet Pope Francis. I very much doubt that I will be. That's very um, odd, isn't it? I, I, I mean, I was reading this morning, uh, Eamon Martin, the Primate of All-Ireland, Archbishop Eamon Martin, saying he doesn't know anything about the meeting. He just knows that the Pope's going to meet victims. Uh, it's odd uh, that he doesn't know. Uh, I wonder if that's true. I'm sure it probably is true. I mean, you know, I think that, that the whole idea of this meeting is one of the most, and I think a lot of people won't perhaps have picked up on this, but I think it's one of the most obscene, uh, insulting aspects of how the Vatican has conducted itself over the last three weeks. A month ago, I was expressing concerns that when the Pope come to Ireland, we'd probably see a meeting like this, which has happened in pretty much every country Pope Benedict XVI went to during his papacy that um, a group of victims would be selected to meet with the Pope. We'd be told that the meeting would be held in private to protect the confidentiality of the victims uh, and that no media statement would be made. And then afterwards, we'd hear somehow in the media from Vatican sources that the Pope had met with and prayed with slash uh, sat with victims of abuse, that he listened as they talked about their pain, um, that he'd, he'd expressed his horror and sorrow and regret at the suffering caused to them by priests, by some priests, and perhaps even by the failure of some bishops. And then we'd see that breathlessly reported as another papal apology, despite the fact that it's nothing of the sort. Because let's be clear, I understood from a very young age, I was thought, that if I apologize for something, I've got to take responsibility for what it is that I'm apologizing for. I have to be able to uh, identify my responsibility and the behavior that I'm owning and taking responsibility for before I can properly apologize. A statement of regret is not an apology. But if I, if I can uh, uh, just explain what I mean about the meeting. Mm. We then found out about three weeks ago, I think, from Archbishop Jimbert Martin, a man I greatly admire and respect. I think he was a man of very great integrity and a great leader and a great actual defender of his own faith. We heard that such a meeting might not even be possible because there might not be enough time. And he made it clear that he was trying to impress upon the Vatican the importance of doing this and that there seemed to be resistance to that happening. Now, that means that the Pope believed he could come to Ireland, given everything that's been revealed about the scale and extent of breadth of abuse in this country. There isn't a family in this country who's not impacted and affected by this. Between the industrial schools, reformatories, orphanages, the Magdalene laundries, the mother and baby homes, the way LGBT people have been treated, the way women have been treated, 
between how abuse and rape was perpetrated in dioceses and parishes across the country. There's enough family who hasn't been affected. And the Pope believed in 2018 he could come to Ireland and sideline that issue. And then for the last number of weeks following that uh, um, comment from Jim at Martin, we've tolerated and put up with an obscene soap opera of the Vatican's creation where people like me have been fielding calls from the media asking us, have we heard anything about a meeting? Will it happen? Won't it happen? This will he, won't he drama that's been created by the Vatican. Um, will we meet with the Pope? Will that happen? And then finally, with breathless excitement, it's announced that there's been a breakthrough and the Pope will now hold this meeting with victims. All of this seems to me to be one of the most cynical examples of, of the Vatican manipulating public discourse to create a very low bar where at the end of which, by putting in place a pointless meeting in the broader sense of the kind of accountability that's necessary to try and suggest that the Pope is doing something meaningful. He isn't. And I think that kind of carry-on uh, is, is, is a grave insult to the dignity of victims and survivors of abuse, to our families, to the family of the man who I just spoke about and the others who died as a consequence of the harm caused by the abuse and the cover-up of that abuse by the Vatican. Uh, and, and I think it's, frankly, I think it's rather repulsive the way they've conducted themselves. Colin McGorman, I'm sure many people will stand with you in solidarity at uh, the Garden of Remembrance at three o'clock on Sunday to coincide with uh, the Papal Mass in uh, the Phoenix Park. I'm sure you're going to have a very busy weekend uh, as well and uh, I hope uh, that uh, your voice holds up. Uh, It's obviously uh, sore at the moment, uh, but look, thank you indeed for joining us here this morning. Thank you, Michael. Michael Reed on LMFM. As we've been hearing uh, this week, uh, the government uh, plans uh, that in four years from now, anybody who's working aged between 23 and 60 will be automatically enrolled into a pension scheme if they're not in one already. By 2027, this will mean that people will be putting away 14% of their gross pay towards their retirement. The Minister for Employment Affairs and Social Protection, Regina Doherty, is on the line to tell us more. Minister, how will this work? Hi, good morning, Michael, um, and thanks for having me on. Um, the plans are not set in stone yet, so what we did this week was launch um, what we call a straw man, which is just an example of what it might look to generate discussion and for people to rip it apart and say that this bit is rubbish and that bit could be better improved by doing this, or, you know, to ask, I think there's 50 different questions in the, um, the little leaflet and booklet that we've released to try excuse me, to try and garner information um, as to how people would like it to work. But the example that we set out, just to explain, um, is that people between the ages of 23 and 60 years of age um, who are earning €20,000 at least, uh, but capped at €75,000, will be automatically enrolled into a savings scheme. And literally, we're trying to keep it as simple as we possibly can. So it's just for an employee to save a few bob, to um, pass a law to make sure that their employer matches the same amount of money that the employee puts into the scheme and the state will incentivise to the tune of 6%, 6% and 2% is the example that's used. But that could change during the course of the consultation. Um, And what do you mean by a savings scheme, Minister? Literally to try and make it as simple as we possibly can because, and I'm including myself in this um, category, there are tons of people in Ireland who kind of think when they start looking at pensions, go, oh, Jesus, they're so complicated. There's so many products on the market. Mm. Uh, I potentially could lose my shirt as people have done so before. Uh, you know what, I'll tell you what, I'll leave that for another day. And they just never get around to actually starting to save. 
And the biggest problem with that is, is that we have some 65% of Irish people who are currently working, that when they get to retirement age, the only thing that they have to live on is the state pension. Hmm. And they find a big drop in their standard of living going from what was, you know, in a lot of cases, a decent wage down to um, the state pension, which is only 34% of the average minimum wage. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do is to incentivize oh, people to uh, stay uh, to work uh, and, and, and that's most laudable and indeed uh, something that needs uh, to be done and people have been saying for decades it needs yeah. to be done and as uh, the population increases and ages, there's going to be more need for it to be done. Uh, but are, are you talking about putting money into a bank account at a, a 0% rate of uh, inflation? No. Or are no. you talking about putting money into a, a private sector pension scheme? What we're proposing in the straw man, and again, it's not set in stone, hmm. but it's just to generate discussion, sure, that sure. we would establish an agency called the Central Processing Agency, very unique. Now, we'll find a fancy name for it, but something akin to um, uh, an independent statutory body like the NTMA. So somebody that would have the trust um, of Irish people. And that body would be responsible for taking all of the deductions from people's wages, all of the deductions from people's employers' contribution, and indeed the bit from the state. And it will tender um, to select a maximum of four registered providers that will each then be required to provide three different types of savings schemes. So a savings scheme with no risk, uh, a savings scheme with moderate risk, and maybe a savings scheme with medium risk. And people can then choose which one of the four providers, or it might only be two, but we're, we're not going to have any more than four, which one of the provider they want to go with, uh, which one of the risks that they want to go with. Um, but the central processing agency will manage their scheme, uh, their pension pot, their purse, whatever we want to call it, and it will travel with that person during the lifetime of their career. So yeah. for argument's sake, if you were to be automatically enrolled next week, if you left LMFM to go to RTE, it will travel with you. If you went from RTE to BBC, it will travel with you. It just, it's your pot you keep putting into it, your employer will keep putting into it, the state will keep putting into it, and when you reach retirement age, you'll have a few bob more yeah. to live on. Which, which is the case now, if you decide, if you opt yeah. to enter into a pension scheme, you can take your pension scheme and the contrib- contributions made by your employer to your next job uh, and so on. Uh, but uh, you always run a risk, do you not? I mean, you talked a- about a scheme there that would offer a return at no risk. Uh, is there such a scheme? Well, we've we've bandied around the idea of something like a government bond, which would guarantee that now it would be a tiny amount and it literally would be only taking your money, you know, and and putting it in a a, literally a savings account. Um, But there are people who genuinely, because of... But would that, that happened but, in the markets in the last number of years. But would that not be a negative risk. return? I mean, when you take inflation into account. Well, again, that'll have to be devised by these registered providers and it'll be governed hmm. um, under the legislation but, that we will provide with the Centre Processing Agency. But what we want to ensure is... No, but it's a, it's a hugely important question, Minister. I mean, if at, mm-hmm. 20, at 23 years of age, I put €10 Euro away for my retirement, uh, what's that going to be worth in 45 years? Well, I, can't, I haven't got the figures, Michael, to work that out. But what the low risk, the medium risk and the moderate risk will allow people to choose. And you can change during the lifetime of your career because maybe circumstances in your financial you know, worth will change. You can change the risk. And so people can start off with the low risk. They can move to medium. They can move to yeah, moderate during no, the lifetime of the career if they want to. But, but, but the ambition is, 
is not for people to ever be in a situation where they lose money, particularly from a low-risk But that's what's going to happen if it's a a no-risk scheme. Uh, If at 23 you put €10 away, uh, in 45 years' time when you go to get your €10 back, it'll be worth the equivalent of €1 or €2, won't it? Yeah. Uh, If I I said no-risk, then that was an error, Michael, because the three options will be low risk, moderate risk and medium okay. risk. So there always will be a tiny risk on a low risk, as there is today with pension providers. Okay, so, uh, so, so maybe risk. it'll be worth five or six euro then, is it? Again, obviously, that much, it, that's very much, Michael, going to be determined by the markets, by the um, yeah. functioning economy over the coming years, as is exactly the same with the 35% of the people in Ireland at the moment. But there's a lot pensions. of people who don't like pensions and there's a lot of people who are providing for their retirement. But who are providing for who are providing for their retirement, but aren't in pension schemes, but they're making provision in different ways. And that's great because that's all we want people to do. So if there's somebody who is providing for themselves by maybe having bought a second house or I don't know, but but will they be able provide- to do that if you take the money off them to make them put it into a loss making scheme? Well, there's, there's some inaccuracies by uh, a particular reporter this week who, first of all, had said that it was mandatory. It certainly isn't. Uh, we're going to opt. Pe- we're going to automatically enroll people in. But and then opt out in seven or eight months, as I understand it. Six months, if they six want months, to, and okay, they will get right, their okay. money back. Okay. So, oh, you'll get your money back if you do opt out. Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I still have money. You know, we're not trying to devise a scheme to take money off people. All we're trying to do is to incentivize people mm. to save for a time in their life where we don't want their living standards to be any less than what it's been for the rest of their life. Mm. So, yes, absolutely, you'll be automatically enrolled between those ages of 23 and 60, between the price earnings categories mm. of 20,000 and 75. If you want to opt out, you opt out. You get your money back and that's no problem. Could if you're outside of those categories, mm. as in if you're under 23 or over 60, um, or if you're self-employed or even un- yeah. underemployed or unemployed, you can opt into the scheme. There's another 670,000 people um, in those categories. Okay, again, and if, you, if you go into one of the higher risk schemes, uh, as people have found out to their detriment, they can end up retiring with next to nothing. Yeah, but that's that's their choice. I mean, this isn't a nanny state. What we're trying to do is to incentivize people to save for their their older years. But it defeats the purpose if you end up with nothing. Well, again, it's their choice. Like, I don't want to be, the state doesn't want to be, and this isn't just my decision, as you had said in the intro. Hmm. This is a conversation that's gone on um, in various different governments since the late Seamus Brennan, God rest him, was... Hmm. Um, the Minister for Social Protection some 20 years ago. Mm. This is something that's happening in every single other OECD country bar us and one other. Mm-hmm. It's a good idea. It's it's to encourage people to have more money in their older years when they have loads of time. And, and don't get me wrong, Minister, I think it's a very good idea, but I, I think it, it's worth talking... Oh, no, you're dead right. And that's what we want to generate. Mm. Thank you. I'm not being mm. pernickety with you. And These are the kind of conversations we need to have so that can generate thought from people and they can come up with mm. better ideas than we've put in the straw man. So... Yeah, but... It, I mean, here's just a a top-of-the-head type of an idea. I I mean, if you look at some of the pension schemes and some of the experiences that people have had and they end up retiring after paying into a scheme for 20, 30, 40 years and end up with nothing and they're disgusted and they find out that somebody gambled on the stock markets uh, to uh, their uh, unfortunate circumstance, uh, would it be better for the state to take the money off people and build houses? Uh, Because property is bound to become more valuable, is it not? And we need houses. Um, that has equally as much risk as some of the scenarios that you've described in the last couple of years. It's not that long ago, Michael, when we had people who were in massive negative mm. equity but the, the, um, the, in their houses. The, the now, money wouldn't evaporate, though. No, but, and you, but you're right. There are cycles and flows in every economic um, 
situation in every country. And so the, the people will have the choice of picking what suits themselves, which is either low risk, mm. which will give them, it won't give them a huge return, but it won't ever give them a huge negative uh, response, medium risk or, or moderate risk. Mm. But the choice will be theirs. The choice will be theirs to opt out. The choice will be theirs as to the uh, level of risk that they take. The choice will be theirs um, to be putting the money in, uh, to pick their, the registered provider that they'll pick. We'll make sure that the governance is there uh, through the central processing agency. We'll make sure that the uh, economies of scale, because there will be hundreds of thousands of people in this scheme, for want of a better word, means that they don't get um, gazumped with huge fees, as sometimes happens you know, in the private mm-hmm. sector at the moment. We want to make sure that the fees are as small as they possibly can be. And that literally it is as simple as you put in a few bob, the employer puts in mm-hmm. a few bob, the state will match it with you know, a, a 662 ratio, and you'll just have more money to, uh, to spend on whatever you want to spend mm. it on when you retire. Uh, as and we I said, uh, as we said yesterday, the employee puts in 150, the employer puts in 150, and the state will give one euro. Uh, but uh, in terms of the employee, uh, you say it's a, an option. It's an option that you will incentivize. I, I take it, by giving tax relief, as is the case now in pension contributions, and if so, at what rate? Well, it's not tax relief, it's a contribution. So once the scheme is up, embedded and fully running, for the, and again, this is only in the straw man, so mm, if people mm. change it, if it's decided that the figures should be different, well, then the figures will be different. But what's suggested at the moment is, is that when it's fully established, you will put in 6%, your, co- your employer, your company will match that 6% mm, and the mm. state will put in 2%. Mm. No, but what about tax relief? No, there's no tax relief. There will be no tax okay. Because what? we're actually giving you hard cash. So it's not giving you relief on the tax you're paying. It's actually giving you money, incentivizing you to save by also saving alongside with you. Okay, because uh, there's a, a discriminatory incentive at the moment for the wealthy to pay into pension schemes. Uh, will that change in October? Again, that doesn't come under my remit, but there is a public consultation being undertaken by the Department of Finance and the Minister for Finance at the moment. And again, I I can't preempt the outcome of that public consultation, but it's done in line. We launched a roadmap for pensions um, in March this year on a very, very snowy day. Um, that mightn't have got much attention because we were all up into our necks in snow. Um, the Department of Finance are looking at their offering. We're obviously looking uh, at changing the how we contribute uh, towards the state pension, which is the bedrock of the state's hmm. uh, pension system, but also introducing a new savings incentive scheme and doing other stuff around uh, governance with regard to pensions, both private uh, contributing and uh, uh, defined benefit schemes. There's a lot going on in this space, but I can't determine what's going to be the outcome of it. But it is fundamentally wrong, isn't it? Uh, it? It's fundamentally immoral to suggest to rich people that the government of the day will make them richer in their retirement than poor people by giving them money to do so. That's why we're introducing this at a rate of 33%, as opposed to what's on offer today for people in the low to medium um, level income brackets, which is only 20% tax relief. Mm. So what I want to make sure is, is that what we introduce for the near million people in this uh, earnings category of 20,000 euros to 75,000 euros is something that's comparable, something that's, you know, as um, as incentivized as people who are earning in the higher brackets that enjoy 40% tax relief mm. because they earn uh, more than 34,500 that are putting money into their pension. Uh, and what about there's people absolutely are... nothing stopping mm. Mm. people today who are earning 34,000 euros or more, which isn't actually very much money, to be quite honest with you, Michael, of availing of the 40% tax relief today mm. if and they want to go to the private pension t- t- Tell it to most people working who aren't earning that money. 
Yeah, I know, but that's why we're trying to... About 80%. Yeah, that, but that's why we're yeah. introducing... <laughs> so it is a lot of money, Minister, with respect it's to... It's comparable. Yeah, but what <laughs> it's an awful lot of money to most people. Yeah, we want to make sure that what we introduce is uh, fair, but it mm. actually does incentivize people um, as opposed to discourage them from a difference of what's already on offer. But I think 33% across all of your earnings is comparable to 20% of some of your earnings and 40% on other of your earnings. But I want to make sure that it's a simple, um, that people have no problem opting into it um, and staying into it for the ones who are automatically Mm. enrolled. And what about people who are in pension schemes at the moment uh, and have uh, the 40% tax relief? uh, Will they lose that? No. Well, again, that's nothing to do with me. Um, Their pension won't be uh, impaired. They will carry on as they always have. If they want to take their pension and move it to automatic enrolment, they'll be more than entitled to, but I don't think they will. But those people who already have pensions are not the people that we're trying to reach. They are already planning and saving mm. for their pension years and their retirement years. We want to help people who are not by incentivising, by um, asking their employers to match their own contributions and for the state to incentivise by putting its money where its mouth is and adding it's euros, mm. your euros to help you in your saving. I, I, I take it the other side of all of this is uh, that in time people will be less reliable, reliant on the state in uh, their older years because they'll have their own private pensions. Uh, does that mean that there will be a cut in the state pension? No, categorically, absolutely not. And that just isn't this Minister for Social Protection saying that is in the department's bedrock um, document which is rock solid that for the next medium term which is the next 20 years there is absolutely no foreseeable change other than moving to total contributions we've also guaranteed that the state pension which is the bedrock of the financial system uh, in looking after people in their older years will never be less than 34 percent of the average industrial wage and so that's already given in law uh, and that's not going to change and to be fair uh, regardless of who is the Minister for Social Protection. Why anybody would want to not look after the people who've worked all of their lives, you know, in for the good of the state in paying their taxes um, is, is beyond my comprehension. But no, right now, uh, in the documents that we've already released in the current legislation, the state pension is the bedrock um, of our financial offering to our older generation people. It will be 34% of the average industrial wage. Um, but what we want to do is just to help people save more. Mm. People are living longer, healthier lives, which is great. Mm. But it's a long time for people to be living on 200 plus euros with no other income um, other than that, you know, and have a quality of life that they would have enjoyed while they were living when they would have earned more. We just want to try and help people have more money in their pocket when they get to 66 because they're young, they're healthy, and to go off and enjoy yourselves, you know, but you have to have money to do that, obviously. Okay, and uh, as you said, you want people's opinion on this. It's out to consultation Please, yeah. at the moment, and thank you indeed uh, for discussing it with us no, on the programme Thank you very much, Michael. Enjoy Thank that. you. That's uh, the Minister for Employment, Affairs and Social Protection for the GLTD. For me, these, Regina Doherty. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now to trim and a campaign to dissuade people from parking illegally in disabled bays and on the line is Sinn Féin councillor Sinead Burke. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, You're blocking 10 car spaces I think in uh, the town this morning. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, um, basically, this is the second time the Meads Disability Network have um, have taken out the, the Back in Five campaign. Last year, um, listeners may remember, we did it on Kennedy Plaza in Navan, and this year we are in Trim. So on the main street in Trim, we have taken over, with, it has to be said, the assistance and permission of local Gardaí and the Trim Council. Um, we've taken over... 10 regular car parking spaces 
We have put 10 mobility aids into them. So we have wheelchairs, rollators, crutches. And we also have signs explaining the initiative with the tagline, we'll be back in five minutes, which, of course, would be the usual stock response to somebody. And it's very few people, but they are there who do abuse the disabled car parking spaces. So we're asking people to, to come down, have a look, and we're also asking people to consider the consequences of misusing accessible car parking spaces which aren't for them. And are there consequences to your action this morning? Uh, well, there's consequences insofar as if anybody misuses an accessible car parking space which they shouldn't be using, there is the increased fine of €150. Euro. That's whether we're about or not. And then also as well in Trim, we're delighted to say that this morning we have launched our text alert system, which again, we were happy to launch when we were in Navin last year. And this morning, the signs are up in Trim. So in particular car parking spaces, the accessible car parking spaces in Trim, you will see a new sign here this morning. Mm. It's got a text number. And if you see somebody using the car parking space, which they shouldn't be using, you can text. And the warning goes straight through to the local um, wardens and they can come down and have a look. Okay, but I, I mean, do you expect that there will be consequences? Will this cause disruption? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's 10 spaces. We're here for two hours. Mm. And um, it's, a, it's an awareness-raising exercise more than anything. Um, we had a great reception in Navan last year. And um, so far, so good here in Trim as well. I mean, look, 99% of people are good-natured. We're not here to cause nuisance. We are here to get people thinking about accessible spaces and how important they are for disabled drivers. And do you think it affected behaviour in Navin following uh, the event last year? Yeah, it did. Did it? Now, it did, and it was that and also a consequence, of course, of the text alert that was brought in as well on the same day. So I'm not going to be able to tell you which was the most beneficial, but certainly the two worked hand in hand because the um, amount of fines issued for Mm. um, people illegally parking went way down. Went way down. Now, Uh, I tried to get up-to-date figures before coming on this morning, uh, Michael, and I I couldn't. I'm sorry. But but they went down. I'm sure. sure Well, so much so they went down that it proved that the council thought, you know what, this is a good idea, we'll roll it out to trim. So they wouldn't have done it if it hadn't worked in Fair enough, OK. Um, but tell us how the text alert works. Uh, if somebody parks illegally in a disabled bay, what happens? you text whom? You, you te- it's, it's a text number, yeah. and the number is on the sign, and then that notification goes through to the traffic warden, and then the traffic warden comes down and has a look. So I'll put it... I'm actually standing in front of one now. So it says um, report misuse to, and then there's an 087 number. Hmm. So somebody just texts that number and the text message goes straight through. So that new sign is currently at the uh, disabled car parking space just at Bank of Ireland here in Trim. People will know it. And there's a few more about the place as well. Okay, so then the traffic warden comes down. Traffic warden comes down and has a a look. Uh, If everything's all right, there's no problem. Uh, If the car is parked illegally, uh, obviously then they're fined. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose this feeds into the whole national um, initiative that was launched last year, which was Operation Enable, which the guards... Um, rolled out, uh, people might remember it. And in the last year, there's been 80 people prosecuted for misusing um, uh, disabled car permits. 
um, which is a step above even just parking where you shouldn't be parking. Um, and it, it, there's a couple of really strange stories that have come out of that. that people have been parking in, say, Dublin city centre and they've been using their grandparents' um, permits mm. so they can get priority parking and yeah. things like that. Yeah. So, look, it's, it's rare, I have to say. It's not the majority of drivers. However, there's still a few people acting the maggot and doing things they shouldn't. And this morning is just raising a bit of awareness on it. OK, well, look, thanks for telling us about it, Sinn Féin Councillor Sinead Burke, speaking from Trim there this morning. Now, we've heard recently about uh, the problems people have in uh, affording to go to the doctor. A survey uh, by the Irish Cancer Society found that two in five people have cancelled a doctor's appointment because of the cost. So is this a widespread problem and have people, generally speaking, found it difficult to come up with the money to look after themselves? Our reporter, Ross Lee, he has been out and about and asking. Um, yeah, it's difficult. I've, I've found myself in that position. Um, it's expensive and... Um yeah, ideally, don't leave it. Look for help um, and just approach your GP and, and maybe explain the situation and see if they can they can help you out in any way. Uh, I think it's right because they can't actually get an appointment when you ring your GP. You're either being put off or you're waiting weeks. Um, my GP's surgery, the main doctor I go to, works twice a week. The rest is a new doctor that I don't know. They don't know me. A lot of older people would be used to a certain doctor um, they'd be used to being seen by that doctor they'd know them so I think that's what turns them off they're either locums or they're just GPs brought in temporary oh yeah if there's any concern whatsoever uh, I'd say get your GP straight away I mean something that's a concern now might turn into like a major health issue six months down the line I mean I wouldn't take risks money comes and goes but your health is just one thing you know you got to look after yourself um, I think the health is very important and that it should always be a priority. Um, I suppose whether you can afford it or not. Um, being a student, I suppose, is one of the big things. I find it an awful expense to go to the doctors. Um, but, you know, I, I always put my health first and I would always put it before anything else and make sure whether I have to borrow money off someone and pay them back or whether I have to save for a week or so I, I would make sure that I had to go and get the job done I must say I'm one of those who would go to the GP I'm proactive because I actually could get in the car you get a fix before it actually happens so I would actually do a check up every year once a full one over and that's it and if there's any little problems they'll solve it and you can get it solved and that's it going forward so early, getting in there early if there's a problem is the secret I just think it's very hard to get an appointment with GP you know you if you're going to the GP you want to go in the next eight hours like or whatever and it's very hard I know our own GP like it's probably two or three days before you can get an appointment with him so yeah I, I, I definitely would put off going to the GP because I can't get an appointment Well I'm glad to say I haven't had to go for recently anyway but like I say I think you mentioned that the main stumbling block has to be price has to be financial you know like um, I, I come from the north of Ireland where we have the privilege of the NHS you know so like when you see a system up there that gives you that comfort it adds to your psychological health, you know. So I think that the sort of people down here don't have that, you know. Like that psychological thing, they know that if anything does go wrong, I'm not going to have to put out a fortune in order to, to be treated, you know. Yeah, it's very foolish to put it off because then it can be too late when you do go, you know. And um, that's the way it's always wise if you feel there's something wrong. Go immediately, like, and get checked out, like, you know, no matter what it is. 
I think women do that more than men, mm. you know. Men will put it off, like, you know, but the women will go ahead. So you wait till that on that deathbed and then go, yeah. which is too late. Would you ever put off going to see the GP? I have, because mm. I just thought it would get better tomorrow. It's one of them things, isn't it, with mm. the Irish people. Ah, you'd be grand, have a cup of tea. OK, look, it is €50 Euros every visit uh, for people without a medical card. That is an impediment, yes. In the Drada area, I understand that there's a, uh, a shortage of GPs. It's actually hard to become a new patient. Um, haven't really experimented with it myself, so I can't say firsthand. Uh, if you're, uh, you know, around 50 years old uh, um, and you're male, well, then, you know, better get your PSA check done, uh, whether it's 50 euros or not. Indeed, and our thanks uh, to those people in Drogheda for taking time out and speaking with Ross Leahy for us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. Eileen from County Meath is one of those listeners. And she phoned in just to say that she feels it's been non-stop negativity on this show all week about the Pope's visit. Pity you never thought to interview those who are going, Michael, and maybe hear their reasons for going and what the church means to them. But that wouldn't fit your agenda, says Eileen. Another listener says, Texter, will you ever get that person? Colin McGorman off the air. The whole country is fed up listening to repetition from him at this stage. Even worse, you never play devil's advocate. Good morning. Uh, this is Audrey from County Meath. I've 10 tickets to the Pope if anyone is looking for some, says mm. Audrey. OK. How, how do you play devil's advocate with Colm O'Gorman, I wonder? Uh, Jimmy was in touch and Jimmy says, listening to the Catholic faith hate Irish media, many of whom have tasted the bitter fruits of divorce, fornication, homosexuality, abortion, gluttony, greed. And because of this, they hate to see others happy. I'm going to see the Pope and it's the best thing to look forward to for me. I'm going with my wife of 33 years and six of our grandchildren. We will be praying for all the sour, bitter people who can't turn back the clock but you can turn back to Jesus and family prayer, says okay, Jimmy. Well, I really are sorry that you feel that way. I don't think anybody has questioned anybody's faith uh, or what they believe in or why they believe in it or if they should believe in it. I think there's been questions about the behaviour of uh, some members of uh, the church, uh, not just those who raped and abused children, uh, but uh, the other ones who covered it up. A texture says what's putting her off about the visit is the cost involved as well as the wrongdoing that has been going on in the church. And she says there's a lot of people homeless in Ireland and she feels that the money should be put into housing. Another listener says it does not bother me the Pope coming here, but the amount of money that has been spent is just crazy. There's so many other things that could be done with the money. Michael from Balbriggan, Michael O'Pat from Balbriggan, who says that... uh, do we know exactly how much the Catholic Church is contributing to the Pope's? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Visit as the church is the richest organisation in the world, and as he is visiting the homeless centre, which is run mostly on donations, I wonder will they give anything to help run the food centre? Mm. Well, that's an interesting question. He'll be visiting the Capuchin Centre uh, tomorrow, I think, uh, and uh, I'm sure uh, the Pope uh, will have a, a lot to say. He's uh, certainly had. Uh, a lot of uh, strong feelings which he's expressed about social issues like uh, homelessness in uh, the past. Uh, the visit uh, I think uh, is going to cost uh, in the region of 30-35 million uh, but the Catholic That's Church right. is hoping to fundraise for it and raise 20 million. I think at this stage it's raised 5 million uh, and I'm not sure if it'll manage, or 15 million I beg your pardon, I'm not sure if it'll uh, manage to raise uh, the outstanding 5 million. Margaret from RD phoned in and she says she was out and about in County Meath and County Westmeath yesterday as part of Heritage Week and that she came across loads of parishes and Catholic churches with flags and buntings up in getting ready for the Pope's mm. visit but she says she was a bit disappointed with Old Castle because there wasn't a flag flying okay. and she was wondering why that was yesterday now so maybe they've been put up mm. since then Quite and she so. says she's from RD and she has her flag out mm. Okay, good stuff mm. uh, Another listener says that the religious order this was Jerry who phoned in the religious orders did not pay up all the money uh, with the redress boards suppose they were supposed to pay 50% of it as far as he is aware but that hasn't been done and that's the point he wants to make. Yeah, well, I don't know if they were ever meant to pay 50% of it, but they certainly uh, have uh, left uh, the state short and left uh, the state with a, a massive bill. Another listener, the Catholic Church is one of the wealthiest organisations in the world. If it had a truly Christian ethos, instead of spending all that money and bringing the Pope here, wouldn't it be more beneficial and much more Christ-like to do some good with that money, like feeding the hungry, housing the homeless, etc.? Mm, OK, well, I think people will be very happy to see the Pope and will want him to travel here at the same time. That's just a flavour mm. of what's come in so far today on that topic, Michael. Mm. We also had some response to the pensions. Um, Bernie from Dalik says, rang in and she says, I'm just very scared listening to that interview. And she says, it just smells like, it feels like, it looks like, and it might be like other pensions where the money has just gone to nothing. Mm. And she says... The value of them, how will we know what the value will be? You don't know what could happen down the line and that's what worries me. Where are they going to invest our money? Because we've been tricked and codded before. Yeah, well, I suppose there's a, a risk involved with any pension scheme, and that's what the Minister was saying, uh, but you'll be given the option of whether you want uh, to make contributions or not. Uh, you'll be automatically enrolled after six months, then you'll be able to opt out and you'll be given your money back. Brian says, so many companies don't provide pensions, and there is a need for some kind of scheme to have enough to live on in your older years. It's something, says Brian, that I'm particularly worried about 
about at this stage of my life, I'm in my 40s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Therese is worried that the pension proposals could be some sort of a scam. She says that she finds it hard now to trust government proposals. (laughs) Another listener says that John says that people are living longer and the state has to look at ways for providing for our old age pensioners that we have a huge ageing population and he thinks that an idea like this has merits and should be teased out. Mm, Well, it's obviously got merits uh, because it's what they do in most places. Yes, uh, Tony from Drogheda listening to the Minister there on about government proposals for pensions. Does the Minister and the government not think that they've robbed the people of Ireland enough? Maybe give back some of the levies that we have paid over the years. I think it's time for the people of Ireland to stand stand up for their rights. Okay, well, the the proposal as uh, the Minister has uh, put to us for discussion is uh, that uh, the state would give you money as an incentive for you to put money away for your retirement. Uh, For every 150 Mm. you'd put away, your employer would put away 150 and the government would put away another euro for you. Yes, um, another listener, Mark, says that unfortunately uh, in the current climate, many companies are not providing pensions for workers so that something has to be organised instead of that. If workers aren't given an option to join a pension, well then what are they to do? They could try and take out a private pension, but then you're not getting any... um, I suppose, support from the employers that they're yeah, not an, putting into An it. employer's contribution, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this would force an employer's contribution and I suppose that's one of the objectives. OK, so moving from that then to the... You were speaking to local councillor just about the abuse of um, disabled parking spaces and we had a listener in touch, uh, Katrina, who phoned in and says, I think it's always a good idea to raise awareness about the abuse of parking spaces for the disabled but the reality is that no matter how much awareness you make, there's always going to be people who abuse the system. I feel that the only way, says Katrina, is for is for there to be more people on the ground working to hand out heavy fines to those who shouldn't be there in the first place. Mm, okay. So that's her thoughts on it. So we'll finish on that, Michael. Okay, thanks for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 That's 1850 If you'd like to call, as I say, uh, Marie and Maggie are taking calls this morning, or you can text us, and our text number is 086 658 Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you've been listening to the programme this week, you may remember that on Wednesday I was speaking with Fianna Fáil TD for me, the East Thomas Byrne, about the prospect of Fianna Fáil merging with the SDLP or forming some sort of, sort of an alliance which would see candidates in the field for Westminster elections. And if that was to be the case, I was asking if we could envisage a day where members of Fianna Fáil would swear an oath of allegiance uh, to the Queen, as I discussed in the programme yesterday with Michael Brennan of uh, the Sunday Business Post. Sinn Féin has uh, described the party as hypocrites, Fianna Fáil as hypocrites, because of the interview with Thomas Byrne on Wednesday. That charge came by way of a, a press release from Imelda Munster, local TD, and we asked uh, Imelda Munster to discuss this with us on uh, the programme with Thomas Byrne today. Thomas 
James Byrne said uh, he wouldn't uh, because there really isn't any issue. But uh, Imelda Munster is here to explain what she means by all of this. And good morning to you. And thanks indeed. Uh, you thought the idea was laughable. Where is the issue? Well, firstly, Mike, good morning to you. It's an issue of, of Fianna Fáil being caught out once again, speaking with forked tongues and naked hypocrisy, in my opinion. Um, the interview you had asked him about Fianna Fáil's plans to run in elections in the North, and he kind of dodged that question, and um, he admitted that he complains when Sinn Féin representatives do not take their seats in Westminster. But when you asked him again about the Fianna Fáil's willingness to take an oath of allegiance to a foreign queen, Thomas Bourne actually said, that is the last thing Fianna Fáil will do. And he also said that it had never, ever, ever come up in conversation within the Fianna Fáil party. And yet you have a situation where any Fianna Fáil rep within 10 feet of a microphone shouting at Sinn Féin to take up their seats in Westminster. And now they're saying that they wouldn't. I mean, the mind boggles. The, the, his responses to your interview were ludicrous. Why would a party tell another party to take their seats in Westminster, yet they say they wouldn't? I mean, it's so cynical to use people in the North for their own political gain. It shows, if anything, that they have no respect for the people in the North and that they stand for absolutely nothing. Mm. He says it's not an issue, though. Of course it's an issue. Every single day they're shouting at Sinn Féin to take up their seats in Westminster. And yet when he but, was but, pressed, but, 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 but he said that he that sa- would be the last thing Fianna Fáil would do. Yeah, which so, would make you think that they won't feel candidates. And I think his point was that if Fianna Fáil was to feel candidates in an election, that they would take seats if they want seats, regardless of where that was. So uh, I gather that if there is to be some agreement, uh, which we don't know will or won't happen at this stage, uh, it'll be people who are members of the SDLP currently uh, who will run for Westminster if they're to feel candidates for Westminster. He, he didn't. He didn't know what was going on. He, he, well, that's right. Yes, he, he literally he said didn't that. know what was going on. They come out with issue press statements. But if you look at Fianna Fáil's history, in twenty six, De Valera had ruled out standing in the north. He had said at the time until they secured a political victory and entered government in the south. Yeah. And then in thirty two, Fianna Fáil did enter mm. into government. Yeah. And in nineteen thirty three, De Valera won a seat as an abstentionist MP in Southdown. But here we are now, eighty six years on, 86 years on from when they took their seat hmm. and they didn't bother their backsides to ever field a candidate. But Sinn Féin were uh, uh, abstaining from taking dull seats at one time, weren't you? Yes, we were, yes, yes. And we, but our stance is clear on taking our seat, not yeah. taking our seats in Westminster. But, but, and that's what we go before but, the people. But you, with, changed, the people you, 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 you changed your position of abstentionism uh, from the Oroctus. Yes, but and was, in doing yes, that, and, that yes. and in doing that, you recognised what the rest of us had always considered to be the Irish government. You recognised what the rest of us had always considered to be the Irish army, and you recognised what the rest of us considered to be, and still consider to be, by the way, uh, the Irish police force on Garda Síochána. Uh, yet you have problems uh, with the incoming. Uh, uh, Commissioner, uh, uh, and uh, you talk about Fianna Fáil avoiding questions. Sure, you avoided questions about we, that. We, that was our stance at the time, but we weren't. We weren't shouting. No, no, no. I'm, tell, I'm, I'm saying you. I'm saying you went. In, I'm, I'm saying you went into hiding, Imelda Munster. Personally, you went into hiding rather than take questions about the appointment of Drew Harris. No, I, I had said that to. Con- I had contacted when you had contacted me. I had said to contact the press office because that's what the press office had said. 
that's what the press officer said to contact to contact them directly. Yeah, and they would they would put put somebody on to to respond that a t- to the that, that, that a TD couldn't speak to their local radio station about the appointment of a guard commissioner when the same TD has been for as many years as you've been elected complaining uh, about uh, the uh, management of Alangarda Shikana and how it is in need of reform. But that was, you see, we have spokespeople for different things and our justice spokes- oh, spokesperson, you, I, Donica O'Leary, and the press officer said that they would release the spokesperson I, I, to respond. And I was just hearing that because it's And are you the spokesperson uh, on uh, the comments made by Fianna Fáil's Thomas Byrne or... or no, but no. I just couldn't. Oh, okay. I couldn't. Yeah. I had to call him out on his are, are you, hypocrisy, are you spo- and I wasn't are, are, prepared are, are, to let it go. Are you a spokes- maybe that's why are, are, he's not you, on the show this morning. Are you, are, are, you a spokes- are you a spokesperson for the people of County Louth? Yes, I am indeed. And do you and do you, and do you want to know who murdered Tom Oliver? Well, I mean that's that's a matter for the the guardy to investigate. But do you want to know who murdered Tom Oliver and would you consider yourself an appropriate spokesperson given that you're a TD for this constituency to make comment on somebody who was murdered? Well, yes, but... Yes, because that's got to do with Drew Harris. Drew Harris says he knows who ordered the killing of Tom Oliver, doesn't he? Well, it's up to Drew Harris. I mean, why did Drew Harris not actually report, give that information over to the guard? But when we asked you to make comment on it, why did you tell us to ring the press office? Because that's what the press office had said, that our justice spokesperson would be taking the they, so, on this. So, so they gagged you? They gagged you, did they? Did the Sinn Féin press it office gag you from making comment uh, on the murder of a uh, citizen of your constituency? No, they did not. They had just said, quite simply, that the spokesperson for justice would respond to media interviews. And do you think that, that was right? Particular matter. Do, do you think that well, was right? That's, that's what the party had decided. No, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, do, would do, do, and I would just adhere to do, that. So, but do you think that was right? Do you think that it was right that you weren't allowed to make comment uh, on whether Drew Harris knows? It was just that they had said the justice spokesperson would respond to those uh, requests for interviews. But, but you not want to, do, to do, did you not want to make comment on it? It's not that I didn't want to e- well, either way. Well, did you? Did you? Well, 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 tell us either way. Did you want to make comment on it? Well, if, if the party had not said that the justice spokesperson would respond... No, um, no, no, I no, no. But no. you know fine well, Mike, I never, ever refuse to come on your show. Yes. I've never done do you, it. Do you, do you want to know... The only do you want to know, ever do, you know who, do you want to know who ordered the murder of Tom Oliver? Well, that's a matter for the Gardaí to investigate. Do you, but do you yes. want and you'd like do, to, do, do, to a conclusion? Do, 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 do you uh, want to know who ordered the murder of Tom Oliver? Well, if Drew Harris has that information, the big question yeah. is of Drew Harris. Yeah. Why did he not pass that information on? Well, he passed it on to Justice Smithwick. He, he passed it on to Judge Smithwick. Well, yeah, but you, why? Why? Why is he taking that information from spooks within MI5? Well, I don't know. That's not very credible do, 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 to do that. Do you know the name of the person that Drew Harris thinks? No, I haven't. I haven't a notion. Have you no I, idea? No, I haven't a notion. But, but I, I read about I it in gen- the papers. Well, I'd, have thought, I, I'd have thought everybody in Sinn Féin would have been talking about it. I don't it. know whether um, Drew Harris has his facts right. I mean, he's, if he's taken them from spooks, we know the history of spooks in the six counties. Mm with their shoot-to-kill policy and collusion. So when it comes to that, you know, when I talk about that, I have total distrust Mm. in people like that. I wouldn't trust them as far as I told them. Well, there's some victims of the Troubles who think Drew Harris is a spook himself. Well, every... Well, that's... You know, everybody um, over the years has known what's gone on 
between MI5, you know, the the RUC, the, the British Army, the SAS and all of the the deeds that they were involved mm. in um, and the cover-ups and the collusion. So I would have little confidence myself in um, anything Drew Harris had to say. Right. Um, do, you, do, do you want this teased out? Which, sorry? This question about who ordered the killing of Tom Oliver. Well, like I said, it's up to the Gardaí. To, it's up to Drew Harris to give whatever information he has mm. and for the Gardaí to investigate do, whether do, or do, not well, that's there's I mean, do, an do, ounce of truth. That's what I mean. Do, do, do you want that person brought in for questioning? Drew Harris? No, the person Drew Harris thinks ordered the killing. Well, he knows. He says he knows, in his opinion. Could you trust Drew Harris? Well, that's what I'm asking you. Do you, do, do you. Well, I don't. That's what I've just said. I would have little trust. I never had any trust given... They, what what they did over the years so, in the six counties. I would never have trusted. So you, I wouldn't trust them as far as I'd throw them. You wouldn't trust Drew Harris as far as you'd throw them? Yes, yes. So, so you have no confidence in the Guard Commissioner? I would have very little confidence. Well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I don't given think... Given his history... He's given, a fairly big bloke. I don't think I'd throw him very far. <laughs> well, given his history, yeah. given his past involvement... Um, and all of that, I would have very little confidence in him, and he's a lot of questions to answer. Is he a sectarian police officer? I mean, he arrested well, he Jerry Adams, far- didn't he? Well, he, well in the uh, middle of an election about uh, the disappearance of uh, Jim McConville, uh, and uh, that uh, was bad politically for you in the middle of a, middle of a, a campaign, uh, and uh, it turned out that he was released without a charge. Well, we've always known um, that the, the RUC, as it was then, were blatantly politically biased and you know, that the, the record stands for themselves. That's why they, they've been, um, you know, they're, they're no longer a force as they once stood in, as the RUC, you know, because there was no political accountability mm. or any other accountability come to that. So for that reason alone, I personally would have very little confidence in Drew Harris. Would you be I, worried I wouldn't be afraid to say that. Would you, be worried that would, you, would you be worried that he might turn out to be a bit of a spy? For British intelligence, that he gets access to guard files. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, would you it's be worried about that? Well, I mean, he had sworn allegiance to a foreign, you know, to yeah. a British government, and you'd wonder how he could then, given that he's previously sworn allegiance, how he could represent um, this state, if you like, in um, an impartial manner, given that he, you know, because of his history and the fact that he had sworn allegiance to a foreign government. That's all there to be to be questioned and teased out. But, um, you know, I've, I've made that clear to you here and now, my feelings on that. But I want to come back, if you like, to the, the, the subject that you did ask me on about and Thomas Bourne and why he's not on today to explain the, the naked hypocrisy. You know, if Fianna Fáil can have intentions, and, and don't get me wrong, mm. I mean, we've nothing to fear about Fianna Fáil organising up the North. We've grown our vote in every election, mm. and the Fianna Fáil record on the North is totally negative, and the only time they mention the North is when they want to attack Sinn Féin. Mm. You know, and personally, well, I wouldn't like to be a Fianna Fáil candidate up North in the next election, mm. given their dismal record. You know, and they, that said, I'd say we'd hope that the, organising the they organising in the six counties would give them a better grounding on the issues that affect the people well, there. I think and support, it's a welcome move. But I think they support the PSNI. And, on yeah. Republicans forever. But I mean, I think they support the PSNI and they support the appointment of Drew Harris and so on. And in that sense, they'd be very different. But I mean, Thomas Byrne did say that at the same time, it might be a step too far to take that oath of allegiance to the Crown. But then they're out every day 
shouting at Sinn Féin to take their seats in Westminster. Sinn Féin have made it abundantly clear, we'll never take our seats in Westminster and our mandate. Mm. That's what we were given our mandate for. And for Fianna Fáil to come out every other day and say that Sinn Féin should take their seats when they're not prepared to do that. And there's legitimate questions for Fianna Fáil to answer. And they are, would they take their seats if they're elected to Westminster? Will they swear an oath of allegiance to a foreign queen? And if not, why would they call on other parties to take their seats? Because all they're doing is exposing their naked hypocrisy and showing that they stand for absolutely nothing. And another one, just as I think of it, would they prop up a right-wing Tory party like the DUP are doing? Like they're propping up the government here. I mean, it's not that long ago that Micheál Martin went so far as to call for the Assembly to be Mm. brought down. And now he's given out about it not being up and running. You couldn't make it up. You literally couldn't make it up. Sinn Féin have made a stand in relation to the Assembly as well because of the denial of rights. Language rights, marriage rights, women's rights. And that denial of rights wouldn't be tolerated here in the South or across Britain. So Fianna Fáil need to come out. Another question for them is to come out and state clearly which rights they will concede to get the Assembly back up and running. But they also need to make it clear, if they're elected to Westminster, Mm. would they swear an oath of allegiance to a foreign queen? And if they're not prepared to do that, then there's nothing, nothing. They stand for nothing when they come out and call for Sinn Féin to take their seats in Westminster. They have to stop being 26 county letting on Republicans. We'll we, we leave the invitation open to Thomas Byrne to come in and uh, debate uh, yes, some of these issues. hopefully he'll come out of hiding and back up what he said. <laughs> OK, well, <laughs> that's just a, an odd way to finish the conversation we've just had. But listen, thank you indeed for joining us here thank this you. morning. Thank you. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Loud, the Melda Monster. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. We hear a lot about uh, working in low-paid uh, jobs or on zero-hour contracts, but what is it like in reality? James Bloodworth is a journalist who set out uh, to find out what it is like, and he's published a book called Six Months Undercover in Low-Wage Britain. He's with us in studio this morning, and thanks for coming in to tell us about the experience you had over six months. You worked it in many places in Amazon in Carewatch UK in Blackpool and the insurance company Admiral and indeed in Uber. I, I don't think uh, you'd go back by choice. <laughs> no. Um, good morning and thanks for having me on. No, it was, I mean, I'd done when I was younger. I'd, I'd worked many jobs like the jobs that appear in the book when I, in my younger days before I went to college. Um, but it was really eye-opening going back. I mean, Working conditions for many had, had deteriorated in the ten years from you know when I used to do those jobs to when I went back. Um, there was a, a, there's been a huge rise in the number of people on things like zero hour contracts, mm. the rise of the so called gig economy, so people working through apps, um, purportedly self employed, um, and it was it was many of the things I saw were were frankly quite shocking, and I didn't expect to see many of them in workplaces in the 21st century. Hmm. Uh, many people would order products from Amazon. It would be one of the better-known companies uh, that you spend time working for. Uh, but uh, I gather you were very fit at the end of it all because uh, whilst you were packing up the boxes in the warehouse, uh, you estimated that you were walking 10 miles a day. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the longest you could walk would be about 15 miles a day and the, the, the shortest would be about 7 miles. So it was averaged at about 10 miles a day. But paradoxically you were becoming more and more unhealthy because 
the way the the employment was structured i mean you'd be walking all day but then you wouldn't really have sufficient break time to eat properly um you'd you'd end up getting home at the end of a a day you know you'd get home at midnight after your shift was over Mm. um if you took a day off sick you'd receive a disciplinary for it so you were going into work ill um you were you were being disciplinary for being sick yeah so so i Mm. took a day off sick because i had a cold um i also wanted to see what amazon sickness policy was and even if you, you know, I phoned in beforehand to say that I'd be off sick, I offered to get a doctor's note um, to, on my day off to go mm. to the NHS walk-in centre. Uh, but then when I returned to work, I was given a disciplinary, a point. So there's a point system. And a disciplinary is, is effectively a point, And if you get six points, you lose your job. Is that and, legal? Um, apparently so, if you if you work for, for an employment agency. But Amazon say they don't do that anymore hmm. but at the time they 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 would deny that they did that policy had that policy but then when i was in the warehouse i saw it in action we were, was, you, were you in the warehouse or when for, i was working in the warehouse yeah uh, I, I saw the, was it called a warehouse uh, no <laughs> <laughs> this was this was perhaps uh, the strangest mm. strangest part of it i mean there was we weren't allowed to call the place a warehouse we had to call it a fulfillment center yeah, i'm glad i corrected you yeah um, yeah i mean uh, what like a fulfillment saying that fulfillment <laughs> fulfillment center yes okay, right. um where you were fulfilling your uh, dreams in life or fulfilling orders uh i think they thought it was both i mean okay. because there was all, there were also cardboard cutouts in the warehouse with speech bubbles coming from the head saying we love com- we we love coming to work and we miss it when we're not here i, oh. I I, did, I didn't meet anyone who actually worked there who thought that, but yeah. um, this oh, is what they hope to convey. Yeah. They probably had blue sky days, did they, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, uh, we were associates. Yeah, we yeah, weren't allowed to call yeah. each other workers or bosses mm. or managers. Well, you weren't employees, associates. were you? Because uh, you didn't meet anybody who was an employee because they never stayed in the job long enough. Yeah, so, I mean, on the first day, we were told that, you know, be under no illusions, this is a temporary job. And, and all of us were on nine-month contracts. And mm. they said, you know, we only keep the best-performing staff uh, on. And so there was, but there was this huge turn, a churn of staff, as it were. So mm. most people wouldn't make it to the nine months because, you know, if you take a week off sick, you're getting five disciplinaries, one for each day. Mm. That's one point away, that's one disciplinary away from getting, from losing your job entirely. Um, you'd also get them for things like taking too long in the toilet, um, for if you clocked in, you know, a couple of minutes late because the bus was late or something to take you to work, you'd receive a disciplinary for that. So mm. few, very few people actually stuck around or managed to keep their jobs for nine months. How did they time the or time that you spent in the toilet? Well, <laughs> what they did was they... So while you're working in the warehouse, you have a the fulfillment centre. You have a, <laughs> a handheld yes. device which you have to take around with you at all times. And it basically monitors where you're going, whether you're picking up an order. And so they they know when you're not downtime is like you're mm. going to the toilet um so that uh, they look at this this computer and see how long you've spent um not picking orders okay. and if there's a gap of like mm. three four minutes which typically is going to the mm. toilet they they don't really care it was, it's still called idle time while mm. your productivity's down um everything is centered around productivity okay yeah um even mm. you know they, they're not worried about you know human things like you need to use the bathroom, you need mm. to take a day off sick. Everything was geared around productivity. So you need to be young, fit, healthy, and, and not productive. Yeah, you did a different type of uh, job uh, working with people who weren't fit uh, and caring for them. Tell us about uh, the work you did with CareWatch. Okay, so yeah, the second job I did, I went to Blackpool. Um, so, so in the northwest of the of the UK, I went to went to Blackpool and worked as a social carer. So, like home visits. So, driving around Blackpool in in a car, um, visiting elderly, disabled people for for typically twenty minute care visits. Mm. And you on a care visit, you do everything from administer medication to someone, um, get them out of bed, make them breakfast, take them to the toilet, give them a bath, all these kinds of things. But 
pretty much all of this had to be done within a 20 minute window um which was which you can you can imagine how how hard that is mm. if, if you're getting an older person out of bed um you know 90 year old who's mm. who's disabled or something that can in itself take 20 minutes yeah. um so what happens effectively is you have lots of care workers working all day working through their breaks um and the result is is what's called clock watch care what carers would call it clock watch care so people aren't really able to do the job properly because the the way in which work is structured for them Mm, yeah and i think people listening to us will have direct experience of that and the difficulty that there is in getting home help hours Uh, and i I think if uh, i'm not mistaken the maximum here is three hours a week for an individual which would be let's say an hour in the morning an hour again in the afternoon and an hour in the evening uh, which must make it very difficult for the carer to do the job and possibly why people are quite often critical of the carer because they're not happy with the job that's being done. Yeah, I mean, so what? So what typically happens um, is is we, those of us who aren't care workers, we see the end, we see the horror stories in the newspaper at the end of kind of the chain of, yeah. of events. Mm. So we read about the the awful case of neglect or whatever. But leading up to that, very often there's. Um, the, the terms and conditions that the staff are working under have a direct impact on the quality of care people are receiving. So, for example, uh, the use of zero-hours contracts. I think a quarter of all care jobs are on zero-hours contracts. Mm. And zero-hours contracts are sometimes used to discipline the workforce by management. So if there's, if someone blows the whistle at a company, if someone doesn't want to do certain like, – doesn't want to keep you know work um, certain shifts – because they can't be fired for that, what the company does sometimes is they'll they'll cut the person's hours right down and drive them out of the company. Similar mm. with I, I interviewed care workers who um, they told me that the company if the company heard the words trade union, your hours would just be cut right down and they'd be effectively driven out of the company using the zero hours contract. So what happens is you have this huge turnover of staff in the care sector, and the the, the people who who see the job as a vocation uh, are effectively sometimes driven out of the job, and so you get this huge turnover of staff. Um, and then you invariably get mm. cases of neglect and where because you've got people who are new to the job yeah. who, who who this constant don't turnover. know what they're doing yeah yeah mm. and mm. you have these mm. cases these awful cases of neglect which we read about and then then the carers as a profession tend to get the blame for that but it's really really important work I mean I suppose all of us will hope that we'll be young enough to be able to give out about our employer telling us you're spending too long in the toilet and to pack more boxes uh, but eventually we get old and we don't want to be the old person who's relying on care from others and we don't want our parents to be in that situation and if we are in that situation ourselves or our parents are we want them to get the best care possible uh, but from what you're saying uh, that isn't the case but given the value of the work it must be very well paid work is it no i mean it's it's minimum wage it's minimum wage um but you effectively get less than than the minimum wage because your your petrol isn't paid for and you're only paid for the time spent in a house on a visit so, so, for so example, if you come in the morning and then go off somewhere else and come back in the afternoon you're driving around between houses yeah so so all day you're driving from house to house but you're paid for the 20 minute window hmm. in when you're doing the job but you're not paid the time traveling to the next house when you're you're working obviously because you're you're going to and from Mm. jobs um so you're effectively paid less than than the minimum wage and then you have to cover your your petrol as well i mean one care worker said to me she said you know no disrespect to cleaners but we're treated like glorified cleaners in the job Mm. and again no disrespect to cleaners but you think the responsibility that a care worker has um they're looking after someone who's who's very often unwell disabled you have to administer you know medications and often those medications if you give them too much you're effectively poisoning someone 
um, someone's depending on you for their for their basic like, life function. Someone in a very vulnerable state, and we pay them the minimum wage, put them on zero hours contracts, and a job with such social value, um, it just doesn't really garner much respect from society. Mm. Which there's something fundamentally wrong with that. I think. And there are a lot of cleaners who get way above the minimum wage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, and <laughs> you know, that, that's a good yeah, thing. Yeah. But it's, um, it's like, it, of course, it seems perverse yeah. when you have such responsibility yeah. that you're, you're not being paid. The more paid value properly. is given to cleaning than looking after vulnerable people. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay, well, that speaks for itself. Uh, you had uh, another couple of jobs in the insurance company and then with Uber. This is uh, this uh, more modern type of taxi service uh, that you call from your smartphone or whatever the case is. Yes, that's right. So it's um, for those not familiar with Uber, it's it's essentially you hail a taxi through your telephone, through your mobile telephone. So instead of standing out on the street waving your arm, you 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 request a cab through your app through the app on your phone, and then the nearest driver um, gets a, a notification on their phone if they want to accept that as a job. Mm. Um, Uber drivers tip they're self-employed. This so the gig economy. So it's it's Uber drivers are classed as individual business people. So they're in their car. They don't work for the taxi firm they're they're self-employed but but the consequences of that is they don't receive minimum wage holiday pay or sick pay and the supposed advantage advantage of that is that you have freedom and autonomy to to work you know when come and go as you as you please Mm. as it were you're a left-wing activist, uh, I think, uh, and I take it the objective of uh, this work and uh, the publication of your book was uh, to make a, a point. And uh, I think, if I, I'm not mistaken, the point that you are making is uh, that this is the fate of many of the working class because wealth gives education and opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I, I went into it with a, as a journalist more than an activist. I mean, I see myself first, first and foremost as a journalist, but then at the same time, I wouldn't hide that I'm left-leaning in my sympathies. Um, so, the, I mean, the purpose was to, to effectively look at what, um, over the past 30, 40 years, we've had, you know, big, a huge decline in industry. So many times in, in Britain, the in, many times in Britain and Ireland and the United States and Europe, the in, old industries have kind of wound down. And what have they been replaced by? I mean, in many instances, in many towns, they've been replaced by insecure, precarious work, um, where which lacks the dignity and self-respect that many of the old manual jobs had. Mm. So you don't need to glorify things like coal mining. I mean, you could die underground. You could all of the coal miners I spoke to in many of the towns I visited in my book. They all had a friend who who died underground underground or mm. or become seriously injured underground. Mm. But there was a certain dignity and respect given to the, that kind of work. So, and solidarity. I mean, uh, there's yes. fewer professions that have been glorified as much as mining and through folklore and song. Yes, I mean, a guy called Alex, who I interviewed in a, in a town called Rugeley, he was a former collier, and he said to me, I see people... This is where the Amazon mm. warehouse was, mm. and he said to me, I see people around the town, younger people, and I ask them, oh, what do you do you know, for work? And they say, oh, I only work at Amazon. And he said, I'd never say I'm only a collier because mm. you, were, you were a miner and you were proud of it. And oh, I, yeah. that really mm. uh, struck a chord with me in terms of many of the working class jobs that exist today. We don't, we don't grant the people who do them much respect. Mm. It's all about social mobility. It's all about escaping. Mm. Um, and, and if you do that job, you seem to have, if you work in an Amazon mm. warehouse, if you work in a call centre, if you work in a supermarket checkout, as a society, we, it's almost as if we tell those people that they've failed in life. Mm. And, and did you do it for real? Uh, I, I mean, uh, you've been to university, you know, take it, you have money in the bank. So when you were working for these companies on minimum wage, did you come home and tap into your savings? No, I didn't. Um, I, I mean, 
I, I was a mature student myself going to university. Mm. I didn't go till I was 23. Before that, I worked in, you know, did laboring jobs, warehouses, call centers. I was a postman for three years. Um, and so it was like going back 10 years later. So I wanted to experience it, you know, quote unquote, authentically. Mm. Um, so no, I mean, I, I lived on on the wages and when when there were gaps I did took on odd jobs so I did a labouring job for a week in Blackpool because before I could start my, my care job so no it had to be done properly or, or not at all Okay and you've learned the lesson of what life is like in those circumstances I think you'll be sharing some of your experiences uh, with uh, the SIP2 trade union in October they've uh, brought you over this time around and into us uh, this morning and uh, thanks to them for that it's been a, a real pleasure and a, a real insight into the life that so many people live if not the majority of people actually uh, in this country and thanks for coming into us thanks this morning Thank you indeed. James Bloodworth, the author of Hired Six Months Undercover in Low Wage Britain. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you've been hearing this morning, Fianna Fáil councillor Wayne Harding is effectively announcing that Sean Gallagher is looking for a nomination in the presidential campaign. When is he going to declare this, Wayne? Um, I'm not sure, but it's quite imminent. I'd imagine that he's waiting for the rift rift to be moved and it will be then. I don't know the day or the time. Um, That's entirely up to him, but I expect him to go into the race. All right, yeah, but he won't uh, appear then before the council on Monday, will he? I, that that would be okay. I don't think he'll be there. I don't, but I'm not. I can't talk from. I'm not certain. But I did. I, I was speaking to other candidates, and I contacted them, and I said, "Are you going into the race?" Because there's been rumours around for for weeks and months at this yeah. stage. And um, he didn't say he was. He had a few more discussions to make. But I felt that um, he will. He will enter the race. And will you and be? A- will, will you and he be asking the Fianna Fáil councillors uh, to give a vote to the Fianna Fáil man instead of the Labour man? Um, I I will be supporting them if that's what you mean with, with the answer to that question. Yes. I, I'll be supporting them. There's no there's no um, whip on on any councillor. They can they can choose to support whoever they want. And um, so I'll be I'll be supporting them um, without a shadow of a doubt. And I wish them the best of luck. Okay, but uh, will he be perceived as the Fianna Fáil candidate? Well, no, he'll be, I, I'm, he's going to be running as, a, as an independent candidate. Fianna Fáil haven't put up one and they're not going to. Hmm. No, I, I know, but uh, as a former member of the executive uh, and somebody who has close ties with your party, as we learned last time round, uh, I'm sure true. that... True, and, and, that's, and that's, that's absolutely correct. You, a lot was learned. All of it was vindicated. He, he was a member of the party. He's not now... And yes, I do think to be strong uh, Fianna Fáil support um, for him. But as we've seen the last time, it wasn't just Fianna Fáil. OK, but I'm sure he'll be perceived as a, a Fianna Fáil candidate. Uh, and uh, I think that there's probably some in your party uh, who would like uh, to punish the leadership for not putting forward a candidate and turning down Eamon O'Queeve. So this could be the ideal opportunity. No, I think punish punish the leadership is not correct. Um the leadership, the parliamentary party made the decision on the basis that it's 500,000 euros to, to fund the campaign. They looked at the uh, local and European elections next year and felt it was more valuable to do that. They decided not to put up a candidate and uh, back Michael D. Higgins. As a, as a, demo, a democratic party, that they're entitled to do that. And they also removed the whip from the councillors so we can do as we choose and look at the candidates that come before us. Uh, and what are you hearing from your colleagues on the council? 
Yes, I think uh, we we will look at all the candidates. There's a number of candidates coming in on Monday. I have spoken to my colleagues, and uh, there is more than me would have support for Gallagher, but I have to confirm that um, at, a, at a WITS meeting. Even mm. though, but I will, but I will listen to all sides, and we will go in and, and agree a decision and get on with it. Mm. And would you hope then that Sean Gallagher would be given the opportunity? Uh, subsequently to make a presentation to the council? Yes, I, I would actually. Um, I, I, I would hope that. And um, I hope he would get the nomination. But I, I also have to say, and, and I do mean this, and I said this to you before um, when Eamon O'Keeve was flying the flag and I, you interviewed, you interviewed mm, me mm. on that. I spoke with Gavin Duffy. That's when I made contact with, with Sean because I nominated him in 2011 and I wanted to make sure that, and, and be honest with, with Gavin Duffy as well because I think he'd be an excellent candidate and I hope he gets into the race. As, as do, and Joan Freeman contacted me ahead of the meeting just this morning ahead of the meeting and I, and I said the same to her and I made my, my case clear to her but she's an excellent candidate and I hope she gets into the race and the work that she does is, is quite poignant to me at the moment and, um, it, and, and I, hope, I hope both candidates I hope the three candidates get into the race mm. and that's true. Uh, Has Sean Gallagher explained to you why he's waiting for the writ to be moved? Nope Any idea why? Because I mean some would argue that uh, you know time is of the essence yeah, and that, and that's a fair point, but that's his that's his mm. strategy. I think we all know how brutal and and cruel this campaign is, and whether it's brave or stupid on Sean's behalf to do twice to himself. I I I have great great admiration for him. I thought he ran a brilliant campaign. He was badly done by, um, and he had great dignity in defeat. Um, I do remember him walking up to Michael D's inauguration, walking into a wall of cameras and and microphones and asked, was he angry? Was he, you know, did, mm. he, did he feel robbed? And so on. And he said, this is not my day, this is Michael D's. I think he's entitled to another chance. OK, we'll leave it on that note. And thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Finnefall Councillor Wayne Harding, that uh, special gathering of council members will take place on Monday when they'll be hearing uh, from potential candidates who will be looking for a nomination. That's where our programme concludes for today and indeed uh, for this week with thanks uh, to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Murray for being in the control tower as always. As I say, that's uh, it for today and God willing you'll join us for our next programme which will be on Monday morning with Cahill Dervin at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie 